Anti-Defamation League has reported this year that anti-Semitic incidents in the United States have hit the highest level ever recorded, a 36% increase since last year, with campus and school incidents up nearly 50%. And there have been 91 bomb threats targeting Jewish institutions. In his latest book, Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds, and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories, journalist Mike Rothschild examines the origins of modern anti-Semitism by telling the story of the illustrious Rothschild family, the legendary European banking dynasty that rose up from the Frankfurt ghetto to become kings of continental finance, lending, mining, and railroads. Mike Rothschild joins us now. Welcome. That was a lovely introduction. The uh, the title of your book refers, obviously, to Marjorie Taylor Greene's accusations in 2021 that space solar generators started by PG&E in conjunction with the Rothschilds may have started wildfires in California. Uh, and it was in order to clear room for a high-speed rail project. Was that accusation her invention? No, it was definitely not. There was a wave of conspiracy theories uh, centered around the California wildfires of 2018 that they were started by laser beams fired from space for various reasons that don't actually matter because none of them are real. And that's a conspiracy theory we've seen repeated uh, in 2019, in 2020, and of course just recently with the Maui wildfires. Uh, there's a, a, a lack of understanding about how fires work, uh, how lasers work, how wind works, uh, just a lot of basic not understanding science with these people. But how did the Rothschilds come into this story? Uh, so for Marjorie Taylor Greene's post, which, you know, she she made this Facebook post while she was just a private citizen. Yeah, she uh, just has another backtracked, cons- backtracked on it since. She's she's backtracked on it, but also said something like, well, it's a good question, which is, of course, is the classic conspiracy theory. I'm not saying it is and I'm not saying it isn't. It doesn't really mean anything. There's no statement there whatsoever. Her particular wrinkle in this was that PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, had a board member who is also a vice president at Rothschild, Inc. Mm. And uh, isn't that interesting? You know, another one of those classic conspiracy theorist questions. Uh, all of it was part of this incomprehensibly complicated plan um, involving high-speed rail and then governor of California, Jerry Brown, and Diane Feinstein's husband, and this solar generator startup. It's it's so needlessly complicated to explain something that can actually just be explained by the climate is getting hotter. But, you know, we can't have that with these people. You've also written a book about QAnon, uh, The Storm is Upon Us. Have they been making similar claims about the Rothschilds? Oh, yeah. Uh, the Rothschilds are a big part of QAnon. And you were a guest uh, on my show when that book came out. That's right. That's right. And here we are talking about the same nonsense, except older. Uh, the, the Rothschilds are definitely part of that. They are seen as the owners of all the central banks, uh, the puppet masters of the puppet masters. There's a series of Q drops that I talk about in the book that accuses the Rothschilds of selling some of their property that they were using for human hunting parties in the Black Forest in Austria. Now, anybody with an, any kind of knowledge of European geography knows that the Black Forest is in Germany. Uh, those properties are real. The Rothschilds did sell them off, but it has nothing to do with human hunting parties. It's that they're downsizing like a lot of other wealthy families are. What was the reaction to that book? Uh, to the Q book? I think people, um, 
I think people appreciated it. I think even a lot of Q believers uh, kind of left me alone about it because I take a very even hand with a lot of this. You know, it's not a book about how dumb these people are, how gullible they are. It, it really is a book about the societal forces that lead to movements like QAnon rather than uh, spending an entire book just talking about how dumb QAnon believers are. I mentioned uh, in the introduction that anti-Semitic incidents are on the uprise, but aren't hate crimes against all minority groups on the rise? Yes, they are. We are seeing a normalizing and an emboldening of public acts of aggression and violence against really any kind of outgroup. Certainly, Jews are seeing it. Uh, the, the trans community is, is seeing it enormously. Uh, the, the parallels between what's happening to the trans community now and what happened to Jews in Germany and Austria in the 1930s are absolutely chilling. Uh, there, there's a, a perception that a lot of people who are trans are not quite human, that there's something deeply wrong with them and that this kind of woke pollution is affecting every aspect of society. You know, you saw the same exact accusations made against Jews in the in the run up to the Second World War. Well, do, do you see minority groups, including Jews, working together to combat anti-Semitism, racism and hate crimes? Uh, definitely. The, you know, the ADL and a lot of other activist groups have been very active in trying to push back against these things. I think it's one of the reasons why particularly the ADL has attracted so much ire on the right. It's that they are visibly pushing back against this normalizing and this spreading of hate on social media. You write that, I'm quoting, in many ways, the story of Rothschild conspiracy theories is a story of modern anti-Semitism, that the Jews dominate global finance and the Rothschilds are their kings, handing down funding and orders for their peons in, in the wider Jewish community to carry out. When, yeah, I, I think that, that the... Start? I'm sorry? When did that all begin? Has that been... Uh, the norm for for centuries now, or is it getting worse now? Well, it's definitely worse now, and it's been the norm for centuries. So it's uh, both of these things are true. Uh, Jews have always been intertwined with finance, going back to the Middle Ages, when you had prohibitions on what Jewish communities could do as far as professions. They weren't allowed to own land, and they couldn't be farmers. So when you are not allowed to do the most prevalent job of an era, you have to find another way for yourself. And what a lot of Jewish communities were able to do was get into finance and money lending and selling rare items because there were canon law prohibitions on Christians being able to lend money at interest. But of course, Jews, you know, don't subscribe to any of that. So they were able to do that. And you had these very harsh laws against what was known as usury, the lending of money at too high an interest rate. But at the same time, the nobility of these times needed money. They needed money to build these castles and palaces. They certainly needed money to equip their armies. So it was a, it was a situation where Jews provided a necessary service and everybody knew it was necessary, but they were also outcasts for providing that service. It was a it was a situation where a lot of Jewish communities just couldn't win. Court Jews. Was that yes. what they were called? Yes, there there was and it's it sounds like a very jarring phrase to modern ears, but nobility of Europe had essentially court bankers. These were highly placed wealthy Jews 
who they essentially used as their own banks. These were people who could tap into wealth in other parts of their community, who could link up with other court Jews and other Holy Roman Empire states and places like that. And they essentially served at the whim of the noble. Of course, if the noble died or was deposed, the next person in line usually had no use for the court Jew of the previous noble, and a lot of them met very ugly ends. You write, almost all anti-Semitism is rooted in conspiracy theories. Who's conspiring? The Rothschilds or Jews in general? It's Jews in general with the Rothschilds at the very head of it. The the Rothschilds are seen as the sort of kings of kings. They're the the most highly placed of the highly placed Jews. You know, there's there's a constant need in a lot of these in a lot of these circles for secret societies that are not actually secret, that everyone knows what they're doing, but no one can do anything about them. And they go by very different names. You know, today we would call it the deep state. In the 90s, it would be the New World Order. It would be the Illuminati, uh, the Hidden Hand, the Insiders. The, the names change, the titles change. But what is constant is someone is at the top, someone is funding it, someone is handing down the orders. And more often than not, that someone is going to be linked to the Rothschilds. And you write, the myth is that the Jews dominate global finance and the Rothschilds are their kings, handing down funding and orders for the peons in the wider Jewish community to carry out. Now, your name is Rothschild. Has that affected (laughs) you? I'm surprised it took this long to come up. Um, it has. And I, you know, as I say on the cover of the book, and as I say in the book, I am not at all related to the Rothschilds of Frankfurt. My father's uh, family that has the Rothschild name came from a completely different part of Germany. And of course, the Rothschilds of Frankfurt, the, the wealthy Rothschilds, they never emigrated to the United States. It was one of the things that most surprised me about the book is the Rothschild family had very little presence in the United States for a a number of reasons that we can get into later. But of course, that history has been obscured by myth. So when a lot of people see a Rothschild who is writing about conspiracy theories, uh, I get a lot of comments. Um, Most of them are not uh, uh, printable or uh, (laughs) able to say on the air. (laughs) You begin the book with the visits of a woman who called herself Anna de Rothschild, invited to events at Mar-a-Lago. Now, what was she doing there? And it was, uh, it's de Rothschild. Is that a clue? So there are a number of members of the Rothschild family who took, uh, essentially titles of nobility. So you will have, uh, some of the heirs today are, uh, some people like David de Rothschild. Uh, there are von Rothschilds from Austria. That's just a, a, a title of nobility, an honorific. So you can be a de Rothschild, a von Rothschild, and still be a Rothschild. Now, in the case of Anna de Rothschild, she wasn't any of these things. She was a Ukrainian grifter who um, made her way into Mar-a-Lago as part of a setup. She claimed she to took- be from the Ukrainian branch of the Rothschild family, she- and there is no Ukrainian branch. Right, right. The, uh, the the Rothschilds did quite a bit of business in Eastern Europe, in Russia, but there is no Russian branch of the Rothschild family. Um, but she used the name because it has power. And there are so many Rothschilds that you could meet her and, and say plausibly, oh, she could, she could be a Rothschild. She, she acts like she belongs here. She dresses like she belongs here. Why wouldn't she belong here? And what did so Trump in a hope sense, to get from that, from her? What did people get from her? What did Trump, why was he inviting her to Mar-a-Lago? I don't think she was invited. I think she just showed up. You know, I think, um, Mar-a-Lago has this very, 
loosey goosey party vibe. And if you can get past the secret service, then you can go mingle with other rich people. Uh, I don't, I don't think there is any, I don't, I'm not sure Trump even knew who she was other than somebody just posed for a picture with him, but she looked like she belonged there. You testified last year to the Congressional Committee on House Administration Election Security, uh, the, the subcommittee. Uh, the work you submitted was titled A Growing Threat, How Disinformation Damages American Democracy. What were you asked to do for the committee and what did you tell it? Um, that's a, that's a good question. I was asked to write particularly about the role of QAnon in the January 6th insurrection, but also more in general, the spreading of election fraud conspiracy theories in those communities and how they are eroding our trust in elections, eroding our trust in government, uh, leading to violent acts, forcing, uh, officials, forcing social media companies to take action against them that a lot of people aren't taking, uh, really talking about the power and the pull of these conspiracy theories as we were at that point entering into the midterm election. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Mike Rothschild. His latest book, Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories, published by Melville House. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Don't the conspiracy claims about the Rothschilds cross party lines? Didn't a study last year on American conservatives find that the conspiracy belief that the Rothschilds are secret global controllers equally believed by conservatives and liberals? Yeah, that was actually really surprising to me that uh, a number of conspiracy theories are believed predominantly by the far right. Some other conspiracy theories are believed almost entirely by the far left. But belief that the Rothschilds dominate society and have uh, outsized political influence was split almost exactly down the middle. Uh, that, that was definitely surprising for me and really a testament of how deeply rooted these theories are in our society. Well, Trump just posted recently about liberal Jews. Yes. Yes. There's a, there's a sense that liberal Jews should love Trump because Trump loves Israel. And you've seen that same crutch used by a number of out and out anti-Semites in the past there. And I write about this in the book uh, when Pat Robertson published his book, the new world order in 1991. Uh, it took a little while, but he, it was discovered that he had essentially laundered the protocols of the elders of Zion in the book. And when the reaction came out, he said, no, I love Jews. I love Israel. It's just the wealthy, powerful Jews that I'm pushing back at. So th this kind of idea that if you love Israel, you, if you're Jewish, you have to love Israel. And therefore you have to love anybody who loves Israel. And I, I think that that is definitely a fallacy. Well, ever since the Holy Roman Empire, Jewish people have been treated as second-class citizens and were often to forced to live in ghettos and limited in their employment options and mobility. So what was it like for Jews in, in the, the Roman Empire before the Rothschilds uh, changed things a little bit? You know, it really varied based on what state you were in. Uh, even other cities in what is now Germany had different laws about, uh, about what Jews could do. And Frankfurt, for example, where the Rothschilds, uh, came from, 
They're, they were penned into a Jewish ghetto, literally called the Judengas, the Jews' land. It was about 3,000 people packed into this tiny, tiny little plot of land uh, with these wooden houses that would burn down all the time. But there were other parts of the Holy Roman Empire and other parts of Europe in general that were much more open for Jews. It really just depended on the whims of the local ruler. Isn't Isaac Rothschild, or Isaac Rothschild, I don't know how it's pronounced, who lived in the mid-16th century, considered to be the original Rothschild? He was probably the first one to take that name, uh, probably after a sign hung outside his house. Of yeah, course, this was a time when... Where does the name come from? Because it doesn't sound like a Hebrew name. Oh, it's not. It's German. It's, um, it was the standard of a red shield, so Rothenschild, um, literally red shield. Uh, and the Frankfurt Jews would do that. They would put these very colorful signs outside their house and usually take some version of that sign as a last name because Jews in a lot of the Holy Roman Empire actually weren't allowed to have last names. So he was the original one. Um, did the financial success of the Rothschilds and their role in assisting with the finances of European governments lead to anti-Semitic hatred and speculation about them? Oh, it definitely did. And the, and the Rothschilds, especially in the pre-Mayor Amschel Rothschild days, so the 16 and 1700s, they were becoming a little bit more successful every generation, but they were still, uh, they, they were not the titans of finance that they would later become. That really happened with Mayor's children. And, you know, it really took until that generation for them to be able to leave the Frankfurt ghetto. They, and in fact, they bought these enormous palaces in part because they never wanted to go back. And of course, Guttel Rothschild, who was Mayor's wife and the mother of uh, his 10 children, she stayed. She never left the ghetto. She stayed in that house the rest of her life. And, uh, as the children grew, they became uh, her, their father's most trusted workers and helped supervise the banking operation. Yeah, he really was intent on keeping the family business in the family. Um, his sons essentially signed a pact. That Not they the daughters? Work. Not the daughters. The daughters were, were definitely kept out. Um, part of that was just the custom of the time, but also... I'm not sure that he trusted his daughters to be able to do it. Um, you know, certainly we, we look back now and see that many of the Rothschild women have been completely written out of the story. That's something that's really only started changing in the last generation or two. Uh, Mayor was a court Jew for Crown Prince William, which afforded him an opportunity to travel, something that many Jews were, were not able to do. Um, how, how important was that travel? It was hugely important. He was able to leave Frankfurt. He was able to go to some of the other major financial capitals of Europe. And I think realized that banking was very quickly becoming a continental affair. And if you stayed in Frankfurt, you could only become so successful. But if you had branches in other parts of Europe, you could be much more successful. You could facilitate trade. You could facilitate loans. So his sons would eventually begin going to the other financial capitals of Europe. You know, there's a legend that he was mayor was on his deathbed and he ordered his children to go to the biggest financial capitals of Europe. That didn't really happen. Uh, a couple of his sons left Frankfurt after he had died, but they did establish banking empires in four or other major cities. And during the French Revolution, didn't Mayer become a chief lender to Crown Prince William? Yes, he was essentially tasked with hiding the money 
the vast fortune of the elector of Hesse. So this, this was at a point where Mayer was moving up in the world. The elector of Hesse was now one of the officials in the Holy Roman Empire who elected the Holy Roman Emperor. And he had an enormous amount of money. And part of that fortune came from his selling of mercenaries. So the Hessians that we talk about with the American Revolution, who are mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, were in part sold by uh, the elector of Hesse, who uh, had employed Mayor Amschel Rothschild. And he had to hide the elector's treasure from the forces of Napoleon, who were encroaching. So they, Mayer and his son Amschel, who was his oldest son, essentially came up with a system to move this money around and finance the battle against Napoleon. And you have the, the Rothschilds making an enormous amount of money in really just a few decades. Well, didn't he charge high interest rates? He charged uh, higher interest rates, but it, I don't think it was anything out of proportion to what other lenders would have been charging at the time. What what they were able to do was very quickly come up with large amounts of money, then lend that money at interest, and then they were usually paid back very quickly. But they were they were able to come up with these systems of selling bonds, of loaning gold. Eventually, they began to start uh, railroads. They began to get into mining. So they very quickly diversified their interests. Well, um, wasn't it claimed that the Rothschilds made money on the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo? That's one of the most predominant legends about the family, and, it, and it's one that you still find in a number of different places. Um, Alex Jones will talk about it constantly on the air, even now. So the story that emerged about three decades after the— Why would Alex the, Jones be talking about it? In what context? Well, he, you know, he's one of those people who thinks that the Rothschilds are the secret rulers of the world. And he will make these videos and he will go on rants on his shows about how they run everything, about how they are, are secret controllers. And much of that stems from this legend that Nathan Rothschild uh, knew the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo before anybody else did. He was able to convince other bankers at the London Stock Exchange to sell their stocks because supposedly England had lost. He bought up these depressed stocks. The news of Napoleon's defeat reached the London Stock Exchange. These stocks skyrocketed in value. And then suddenly Nathan Rothschild is the richest man in the British Empire and controls the English money supply. Now, of course, none of that is actually true. But it's a very powerful story that emerged at a time when anti-Semitism was on the upswing. And as we said earlier, almost all anti-Semitism is rooted in conspiracy theories. Yes. Yes. And here you have a classic one. You have a classic story of inside knowledge, of uh, manipulation, of hiding the truth, and of uh, and of making an enormous amount of profit off it. It's a it's a classic conspiracy theory. Well, that, okay. So the Battle of Waterloo that was a while ago. Did the the conspiracies continue into? Oh, the they've 20, continued into to the twenty first century. They have continued to the 21st century and will continue on after that. The the uh, Waterloo legend was repurposed by uh, cranks of the late 1800s. It was repurposed by the Nazis in the 1930s. Uh, it's still being told. It's being used as the basis for any number of other legends about the Rothschilds, that they fund both sides of every war, that they control all the central banks, that they have $500 trillion dollars. A lot of these legends stem directly from this idea that at Waterloo, Nathan took control of the British money supply. There are an awful lot of Jewish people who have had no connection to the Rothschilds. 
Um, But are they included in all of this? So with a lot of anti-Semitism of the past, there was some attempt at a veneer of politeness. You would get a lot of accusations against the Rothschilds, but then the the authors would back up and say, I am by no means anti-Semitic. The Jewish people have worked hard and accomplished a great deal. It is just these wealthy barons who, who need to be scrutinized. You get a lot of not all the Jews, just the rich Jews. And unfortunately, one of the things that's starting to fall away is this idea that it's just the rich Jews. For a lot of the sort of cutting edge of anti-Semitic influence, Influencers, it really is all Jews doing this. So, since uh, I was born Jewish, that means somehow I'm <laughs> I'm benefiting from this, even though I'm not aware of it. Oh yeah, it, it is really seen as Jews being clannish, being um, only devoted to their co-religionists. Uh, there, there is this sense that the Jewish people kind of all know each other and all plot together. Uh, I mean, it's ridiculous. But even now, you get people who aren't even Jewish who are accused of being Jewish if they write something that these conspiracy theorists don't like. In the epigraph of your book, you quote Bob Dylan. He wrote, he said, people call you this or they call you that, but I can't respond to that because then it seems like I'm defensive. And, you know, what does it matter, really? Yeah, I love that Dylan quote. It's from a 1984 interview. And I feel like it it really sums up how the Rothschilds have handled all of this. Um, they have not responded to it. And the few times that they have, it has not gone particularly well for them. Um, it does not do anything to quash any of the beliefs that any of these people have. Um, and then, you know, I, I found a lot to to like in that quote from Dylan, you know, going through the same things of like people are going to decide what you are and it doesn't matter what you actually are because as long as they've decided it, that's what you are to them. How did you come by the name Rothschild if you're not a member of the family? Um, Very similar story in terms of hanging up a sign with a standard of a red shield. Uh, This was just in a different town in in Germany, Um, but a very similar story. You know, my father's, ancestors uh they didn't have last names they usually went by their father's uh first name and at some point one of them hung up a sign with a red shield on it and it became attached to the, to the family as a family name and so when you said hi when you spoke to people in the family the Rothschild family and said my name is Rothschild what was their response um, most of them didn't respond. You know, I reached out to a number of members of the family, uh, when I started writing the book to say, you know, I would really love to tell your story here. I would love to talk about what these theories have meant to you, what, what it's been like to be accused of all of these ridiculous things. Most of them don't talk about it. They don't, you know, they really don't bring it up. It's not even in their private archives. Um, they're very quiet about all of this. I did hear from a few who, uh, said essentially, it's a good idea, but we're not going to be involved, which was nice. And uh, one of them put me in touch with the family's archivist in London who uh, who was able to answer a number of questions for me. But generally speaking, they really just don't want anything to do with this. Uh, isn't one of the main reasons they say they don't agree to interviews because all of the conspiracy theories force them to try to prove a negative? Yeah, that's one of the biggest reasons, that if you are – 
trying to push back against theories about you, the the people who really need to hear it are the people who are never going to be swayed by evidence, who think that you have to go out there and say all these things because, you know, of course you do. You, you know, we figured you out. So, you know, a Rothschild heir can't give an interview and say, well, we don't have $500 trillion. We don't control all the central banks. Most people don't think that already. And the people who do think it will never listen to a Rothschild denying that something is true. It, it, you, you can't get through to the people who need to be gotten through to. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Every head held high, for at last we're underway. Founders of the famous financial firm, Rothschild and Sons. Jaws will drop when the world finds out what a step we took today. Copenhagen's favorite banking house, Rothschild and Sons. Yes, you skeptical souls. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Mike Rothschild. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds, and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's Give in the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that donation of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Mike Rothschild, his book, Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories, is published by Melville House. He is an investigative journalist who studies conspiracy theories and the author of uh, and the Storm is Upon Us about QAnon, which uh, was the subject of an earlier show with him. Uh, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other publications. Now, um, do you have any ideas of what the best way to respond to anti-Semitism? Well, uh, I wish I had better ones because, of course, there's two millennia of, of anti-Semitism and I don't know if anyone's found the best way to respond to it. For me personally, uh, I ignore a lot of it. Um, and I know ignoring it doesn't make it go away. But at the same time, a lot of the people who are attacking you with these tropes and these slurs, they're trying to make you angry. They're trying to waste your time. And I don't give them any time. I think the way that we can respond to it in general is to police it in ourselves, is to see what these terms mean, to, to understand what it means when somebody talks about a Soros-backed district attorney or globalists or European banking houses or Rothschild Inc. You know, these are all euphemisms for Jewish wealth. And we can see those in the wild. We can call it out when people that we know talk about these things. We can understand that making jokes about Jews being cheap or Jews being greedy, it's not funny. It's, it's quite hurtful and it's a, comes from a long tradition of scapegoating and othering this religious community. Well, George Soros is not a member of the Rothschilds, but he seems to suddenly have been included in the accusations. 
Yes. So as I write about in the book, the uh, transition from the Rothschilds to Soros really starts in the late 90s. Um, you know, Soros had been in the financial sphere for really decades before that, but he wasn't well known. If anybody knew him, it's because he was supposedly the man who broke the Bank of England when he shorted the pound in 1991. But most people didn't know anything about that. You started to see attacks on Soros coming from the Lyndon LaRouche community. Uh, there were, there were these newsletters published, uh, connecting Soros and the Rothschilds, you know, calling them sort of charter members in this secret society in post-war England. But you really didn't see the attacks on Soros start until he got involved in politics, and that was in the 2004 election. Soros was sort of a classic Reaganite Republican. He was very devoted to anti-communism, to capitalism, but he vocally opposed Iraq. And as such, he very quickly became public enemy number one for American conservatives who were still drunk on this sort of post-9-11 with us or with the terrorists kind of thing. So they've made him into an arch enemy liberal. Yes, but he's he, the. His, do we know if his politics have moved to the left? He, uh, his politics are much more far left than they used to be. Um, you know, he's very vocally supported Barack Obama. He's supported the Clintons. He's extremely anti-Trump, and he's donating to causes that are usually looked at as progressive. Uh, so, drug legalization, prison reform, voting rights, abortion access—you know, these issues that are very traditionally progressive. But he also has this history of being vocally anti-communist and vocally anti-totalitarian. So you would think that this would be somebody that the American right would have really embraced. But in the post 9-11 Fox News era, he became the public enemy number one for people like Glenn Beck, for people like Bill O'Reilly, who would just talk about him for hour after hour after hour and turn him into the puppet master that the Rothschilds really had been. Well, do people complain about Alex Jones or Bill O'Reilly these days? Oh, sure. I mean, there's maybe not so much those names, but there's a new generation of right-wing influencers who do the same thing. If you look at somebody like Tucker Carlson, there's a huge audience. Uh, maybe not as big as it was, but does he say anti-Semitic Car things? Tucker Carlson. It's it's not so much outward anti-Semitism because I still think that's hard for them to get away with. But it is definitely the tropes, the myths, the stereotypes. The idea that the Jewish bankers run everything and they use these front groups and organizations and it's all done through Soros and they're trying to make American society godless and progressive and racially mixed. It's, it's very much the same kind of thing, but it's not done with outward racial slurs. What's, I, I mentioned earlier that you testified before Congress. Did anything result from that? Um, I think that there is a general sense, particularly among congressional Democrats, of having to take this more seriously. Um, and, and actually, we saw in the 2022 midterms that a lot of the most uh, QAnon-adjacent conspiracy theory candidates didn't do that well. Uh, there, I was quite afraid that a lot of these uh, QAnon-believing Secretary of State candidates would uh, win their elections and then sort of usher in a future where they decide who wins elections based on fraud conspiracy theories. And a lot of these these people did not did not do well. They didn't win. Uh, just in general, Republicans didn't do all that well in 2022. Now, of course, the Republicans are not taking any of this seriously. When I was in the hearing, 
I got questions from Republicans about Stacey Abrams and I think about Hunter Biden and, and all of these things that had nothing at all to do with what I was talking about because they're trying to get on Fox News. They're trying to get their little sound bites so that they can go viral. One of the things that I talked to Democratic staffers about was don't give them the soundbite. Don't take the bait, which is hard to do when you're getting kind of lectured by somebody for five minutes. Does Hunter Biden have any link to, to Jews? No, none, none at all. But he but is trying the, to create those links. It's not even that they're that they need a link to Jews. It's just that this is the person they're going after. And somebody like Hunter Biden is the uh, fulcrum for so many right wing conspiracy theories right now. They're they're going to go back to him because they know that's how they get on TV. That's how they go viral on Twitter. It's not by asking questions about how we can combat disinformation. It's about, uh, you know, what what do you think of Hunter Biden's laptop? Should social media companies decide what's true or not? It's questions that are not relevant at all to the problem at hand. Now, over the years, the Rothschilds have been blamed for a lot of things or involvement in a lot of things like the sinking of the Titanic, causing the Great Depression, and even creating the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, it's a pretty extraordinarily powerful family. How did they, um, can you break those down? Uh, sure. How did that happen? Sure. So with the Titanic conspiracy theory and, and a lot of these other ones, they're very bound up in opposition to central banking. Uh, there is a, a feeling among a number of uh, what we would now probably call conservatives, that central banking is is a plague, that it's illegitimate, that it's simply a Jewish-funded way of taking control of our finance. So there was this idea that the Rothschilds had the Titanic sunk in order to kill several prominent bankers who were opponents of the Federal Reserve. Now, that's ridiculous. So the but Rothschilds it is a, had the Titanic sunk? That uh, Did the Rothschilds? No, uh, that was... Uh, that's what they sadly- said? They, but they think they did. They, and of course, nobody, nobody supplies the details of how the Rothschild family controls an iceberg. Mm-hmm. But that's well, we what have to they, ask Marjorie Taylor Greene. Sure, sure. I mean, if the Rothschilds already, you know, control the weather and the satellites, you know, what what's one iceberg? So, you know, if you skip ahead a little bit to something like COVID nineteen. That in particular comes certainly from generalized conspiracy theories that the Jews just control everything. But in particular, there was a um, rapid test for uh, for viral diseases that was patented by a Dr. Richard Rothschild mm-hmm. that he then uh, updated that patent to serve as a test for COVID-19. Now, Richard Rothschild has no link to the Rothschild family. This test was simply a rapid test for illness. But you take uh, something that exists, you Photoshop it a little bit, you spread it around to people who are already primed to believe that the Rothschilds are responsible for everything, and it's very easy to see how these things could take off. My guest on today's London Low Paid at Large is uh, Mike Rothschild, also not related to the, the family we are discussing. His latest book, Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories, it's published by Melville House. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. 
the Jews of the Rothschilds and Jews have also been accused of causing the Great Depression. How did they do that? That's pretty powerful. <laughs> well, such is the power of the Rothschild myth. With the Rothschilds in particular, a lot of this stems from Nazi propaganda. So one of the major banks that failed early on in 1931 was the Austrian bank Kreditanstalt, which was started by one of the descendants of Mayor Amschel Rothschild. And it was still run by Rothschild. And uh, Kreditanstalt failed because of a, essentially because of a botched merger with another bank and they took on a huge amount of debt. They couldn't pay that debt. Uh, and Kreditanstalt was so big that Austrian citizens started to try to get their money out and there wasn't any money. So this banking contagion then spreads across Austria to Germany, spreads across Europe, spreads to Central America, to the United States, which of course is already enduring the depression. And pretty soon, uh, Germany's economy is in tatters. Uh, at one point at the end of 1931, a third of German working men were unemployed. And Adolf Hitler comes along with the Nazi party and says, Here's what happened. Here's who to blame. Here's what we're going to do about it. So you had Nazi papers that essentially said that Louis de Rothschild, who was the, uh, at that point, the heir to credit Anstalt, needed to make good all of the losses suffered by Germans and Austrians in the Depression. Uh, this was directly blaming a Rothschild for what was essentially an unavoidable worldwide banking collapse. Well, so... The, the, and what do they gain by it? What do the Rothschilds yeah. gain? Um, they gain control. They gain power. They gain the ability to uh, run the destiny of nations. This is some of the, the stuff that the Rothschilds have been accused of for centuries. This idea that they are funding both sides of every war, profiting off of the misery, hoarding all the wealth for themselves. And there was a feeling in German society that the Rothschilds caused this crash in order to take control of Europe. Uh, it's very similar to some of the conspiracy theories that we would see about the Great Recession that we would see right now with uh, high inflation. You know, these these things... They, they change in number, they change in name, but the basic thought of somebody did this to us, that never changes. You write about the pamphlet wars of Paris in the 1840s. What happened there? So this really was the birth of the Rothschild conspiracy. Uh, in uh, 1846, there was a, a general sort of anti-wealth feeling that too much wealth, too much power was being concentrated among a certain number of people. Many of those people were Jews. And so in 1846, you have a train crash on a Rothschild-owned train line uh, in the town of Fampo, just uh, just north of Paris. And I think something like 15 to 20 people die in it. It's, ter it's a terrible accident, but it's not even the worst train crash in French history up to that point. But an anonymous pamphleteer who goes by the name Satan writes a pamphlet that essentially accuses the Rothschilds of uh, building these sh cheap, shoddy railroads, of not caring about the life of men, of destroying the vast uh, beauty of France's forests. And Satan merges that accusation with the accusation that Nathan Rothschild had been in attendance at the Battle of Waterloo, had ridden his fine stallion across Europe at night, braved a once-in-a-century channel storm, and gotten to London just in time to make enough money to take control of the British Empire. 
And as the socialist and anarchist movements are ramping up in Europe, leading to the revolutions of 1848, this becomes an extremely powerful notion. And this pamphlet uh, sells something like 60,000 copies in Paris. It spawns response pamphlets. It spawns responses to the responses. And you see very quickly the way that these kinds of ideas can go viral at the time. These pamphlets are cheap to make. They can be sent out easily. And many, many people get drawn into this. And we would see these kinds of spikes in Europe and then later the United States over and over where anti-Semitism would spike based on a real life event. It would cause the creation of all these books and pamphlets and then it would die down and then it would come back. And anti-Semitism and the name the Rothschilds are inextricably linked? They are. They're absolutely inextricably linked because the Rothschilds are seen as the most important of the wealthy Jews, that there's something about the Rothschilds, that they have this uh, unseen control, not just over Jewish society, but over world events. And there are a number of theories that the Rothschilds started the U.S. Civil War in order to divide America between the British and the French Rothschilds, that they were supplying both sides of the First World War, that they were supplying both sides of the Second World War, that they were, that they provided the money for the Nazi war machine. On and on they it They gave goes. the Nazis when, money? That's Well, that's the theory. I mean, certainly they didn't. They had their, you know, the, the Paris and Austrian branches were completely stripped bare by the Nazis. The Nazis confiscated an enormous amount of Rothschild wealth. The Vienna branch of the family never recovered from it. Uh, they had their artwork stolen, their palaces looted, their uh, ironworks and their, their mining facilities taken. The Rothschilds suffered enormously during during the Second World War, but, you know, not to the conspiracy theorists. Well, what about today? Do they really own $500 trillion in every central bank? They do not. They uh, they own considerably less than $500 trillion. The, the Rothschilds now are essentially an old money family. Uh, some of them work in the family business. A lot of them don't. They have long ago divested or sold off or given away all of those properties, those mines, the railroads. You know, some of the most important Rothschild palaces were donated by the family decades ago. They, they don't have the power. They don't have the influence. And they haven't for quite some time. They weren't even by the beginning of the First World War. The Rothschilds had started to recede in power, but that name has this enormous pull to it. It has this mythos around it. So that name still conjures up certain things that haven't really existed for quite a while. So does somebody just invent the idea that they own $500 trillion in every central bank? Well, that's one of the things I really wanted to do with this book was try to trace the origins of some of these myths. And, you know, some of them, they can't really be traced. They just appeared somewhere. Something like the $500 trillion there's actually a version of that story that goes back to the 1940s that the Rothschilds had $500 billion. So at somebody at some point just decided that trillion sounded more sinister than billion, and there you go. And That's how an Internet myth takes off. They also have been accused of controlling the British money supply. Yes, that is... Uh, Does it matter one which of the party is in control of England? Yes, the, the, the quote from Nathan Rothschild is supposedly, 
he who controls the British money supply controls the British empire and I control the British money supply. There's no evidence he ever said this. Uh, it's a quote that probably comes from a 1950s or 60s era printing of the book Secrets of the Federal Reserve by the uh, right-wing conspiracy theorist and anti-Semite Eustace Mullins. Hmm. Yeah, well, we are getting close to the end of the show, but I was wondering if there are things that you wanted to talk about that I haven't addressed. You know, the the one thing that I was really interested by was the role of the Rothschilds in Jewish culture and the Rothschilds for all of the conspiracy theories and for all of the deranged accusations that get thrown at them, the Rothschilds have really served as a beacon of aspiration for a lot of Jews. You know, there's, there's a quote that I found that's at the beginning of the book by Eli Wiesel, who talks about the name Rothschild conjuring up uh, the ability to save Jews from dungeons and, and great journeys and, uh, you know, wonderful things. And this, this really served as something he latched onto as a kid. And, and I think there's a lot of Jews who looked at the Rothschilds as something to aspire to, as something that you one day, if you worked hard enough, you could be like them. You, you know, a Rothschild could come to your house. So I think for all of the theories and all of the hateful things that are said about them, they really occupy a very important place in Jewish culture. You have been described as a conspiracy theory expert. What got you involved in that kind of research? You know, I started getting into conspiracy theories in college. I would listen to the old Art Bell Coast to Coast AM radio show. Uh, and, and, you know, he was talking about things that nobody I knew talked about, UFOs and crop circles and the face on Mars and angels and, and stuff that was really outside of the mainstream, but also wasn't harmful in the way that conspiracy theories have become. I became really interested in conspiracy theories as stories, as things that are passed down from one generation to another, and why people believe these things. Why is it that most people are repelled by most of these ideas, but for a certain type of person, that becomes their their reason for living, the way they view all of existence. And I, I became really fascinated by that. And then, of course, we, we've we had this transition from conspiracy theories being things that most people didn't talk about. You know, your, your weird uncle would pin you down and rant at you about fluoride. So now everybody seems like they know somebody who is involved in one of these different theories and usually more than one. What role does religion play in all of this? Because the Jews were accused of killing Jesus. Sure. It, it's a, it's a huge role. Um, Jews are seen as the implements of Satan's plan in a lot of ways. I mean, never mind that Jesus himself was Jewish. All of his disciples were Jewish. You know, it's another one of those things that just doesn't matter to these people. Uh, there, the idea that, that the Jews are secretly in control and secretly trying to do away with Christendom. It's a huge part of what powers these theories. And uh, and it continues, as we pointed out, uh, interestingly, or well, horrifyingly, uh, attacks on Jews. There's a 36% increase on uh, anti-Semitic incidents in the United States alone. Is this just the United States, or are we seeing it all over the world? It's all over the world. Uh, there is a definite uptick in the far right, in authoritarianism. You know, we've seen this certainly in the United States in England, in France, in Eastern Europe, and where authoritarianism goes, anti-Semitism follows almost without fail. Uh, these regimes love scapegoating, they love blaming, and who is a better historical scapegoat than the Jewish people? Hmm. 
Hmm. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. I've been talking with Mike Rothschild. His latest book, Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories, is published by Melville House. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for all of her help in preparing today's show. And if you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. That's L-O-P-A-T-E, all lowercase, Leonard Lopate. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support BAI to keep the station coming to you because right now we are going through a really rough economic patch. And I'm sure if you're a regular listener to the station, you know just how dire it is. But if you haven't come through yet, we hope that if you have the means to do so, you'll make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And um, as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories by Mike Rothschild. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a BAI buddy for $5, $10, $15, $20, $25, whatever is comfortable for you a month, as long as you wish to do that. It allows us to plan for the future. And uh, it also, yeah, it gives us something. We know that next month we'll have a certain amount of money, and the month after we will as well. Uh, and we'll say thank you you do that with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. So, if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopin at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on this show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one on New York Radio Dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with a tax-deductible support. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Ian Golden will discuss his book, Age of the City. We'll see you then.